Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, and welcome to the Stock Club Podcast. I'm Mike, and we'll be stepping in for James on today's show. With me this week are Anne-Marie, Rory, and Emmett from My Wall Street's investing team. Today we're talking about Robinhood and Duolingo's S1s, why Instagram is trying to look more like TikTok, and should pre-revenue companies be on the public markets? Okay, lads, I'm sure by now you've all seen the video of Mark Zuckerberg celebrating the 4th of July by wakeboarding while holding an American flag to the backing track of John Denver's country roads. Emmett, as a fellow founder and CEO at around the same level as Zuck, how are you going to follow this up next Paddy's Day? Um, I was thinking maybe some kind of uh, Nicholas-sponsored skateboard, uh, maybe Irish flag down through Rana, Rathmines, across Dublin City, all the way to Northside, Clontarf, Hoth, Malahide, the whole nine yards. <laughs> Fair enough. Amory, did this fill you with the national pride Zuck was expecting it to? Um, no, I think I was filled with much more pride what I did on 4th of July, which was I ate cornbread and mac and cheese, and then I watched Shrek 2. So... <laughs> <laughs> how patriotic Absolutely. is Shrek yeah. 2 a particularly patriotic film absolutely no I would say Strong Shrek 2 is patriotic. very very English actually because they're all like English like an English royal family like the mom is played by Julie Andrews and they all have these English accents but their daughter is played by Cameron Diaz and she sounds American and that's never resolved <laughs> <laughs> I'm moving away from this before we get too deep into Shrek no, no, 2 no no let's here. keep going um... <laughs> right this past week, Robinhood released its S1, a mandatory filing companies must file with the SEC before going public, which details to investors all aspects of the business and its recent performance. In true Robinhood fashion, the S1 released the day after it received a record $70 million fine from my Wall Street watchdog, Finra. The highly anticipated document had Wall Street buzzing as the new age broker confirmed it manages more than $80 billion for some 18 million users on the platform. In what is sure to be one of the more unique IPOs we've seen, the company also expects to reserve 20 to 35% of the shares sold at IPO for its own retail traders, a privilege usually reserved for institutional investors. Rory, you've had a look through the S1. What are your initial thoughts? I'm just good. First of all, the reason I was laughing there was because Emma just like did like a total head check when you said my Wall Street regulator. And he went, what? <laughs> oh, my Wall Street regulator. Jesus. <laughs> Wall Street's uh, it's okay, Evan. It's okay. Don't worry. There's no regulator. <sighs> um, <laughs> right, on to the S1. I'm going to start with two direct quotes from the S1. The very first is this. We're proud to serve this next generation of investors, and it's painful to see them lambasted in the news reports. Anecdotes of people winning and losing large amounts of money garner more attention than the more pedestrian truths the majority of our customers prefer to buy and hold. That's quote one. Here's quote two. 
A substantial portion of the recent growth of our net revenues earned from cryptocurrency transactions is attributable to transactions in Dogecoin. If demand for transactions in Dogecoin declines and is not replaced by demand for other cryptocurrencies available on our trading platform, our business, financial condition and results of operations could be adversely affected. Oh my God. Right there, you have this almost Shakespearean treatise on the duality of what Robin Hood is, right? It is just outrageous. Everything they say, everything they claim is this affinity with the retail investor, even the name Robin Hood, taking from the rich and giving to the poor. And perhaps they actually do believe that this is what they're doing. They really believe they're democratizing investing for the masses by removing fees. But the fact is, very much like Facebook, if you're using their platform, you are not their customer, you are their product. Um, let's just take a quick look at the financials. So revenue for 2020 was 959 million. That was up 245% uh, from the year before. Pretty good going. Uh, net income was 7 million. That was versus 170 million loss in 2019. They current, on, on March 31st, which is the most recent quarter that they reported, they have about 18 million funded accounts. Um, and they have assets under custody of about $81 billion, give or take. Um, off that 2020 revenue, around 75% of it came from selling customer order flows to market makers, and that rose to 81% in the last quarter. So contrary to what Robinhood claim as their stated goal of serving the next generation investors, what they're actually doing is serving market makers who are paying them between 75% and 81% of their revenue to know what retail investors are doing. Essentially, Robinhood's main business is convincing people to trade options and then having option market makers pay to take the other side of that trade. Now, look, I don't know if there's anything inherently wrong with that. If we think of casinos, for example, everyone knows that the house always wins, yet hundreds of millions of people flock to Las Vegas every year. However, Robinhood has certainly been a major force in this kind of memification of the markets, this gamification of investing, where you do see typically young, pretty ill-informed investors taking out ludicrously risky bets, which could have very long-lasting consequences on their financial future. And of course, as we've already seen what can happen in those circumstances, there was a terrible story of Alexander Kearns, a 20-year-old student who ended up committing suicide after misreading his Robinhood account balance, thinking he owed them 750 grand on an options trade. So look, this is the business. This is what they are. You know, but we're not even going to talk about valuation of this company yet. It's far too early to get into that. But I always think it is important, especially these days with IPOs, to ask yourself, why are they selling? The, like S1 is essentially a sales pitch where the owners are saying, hey, look, we've got this great thing. You should be buying this thing. So why are they IPOing right now? Well, as discussed, a huge proportion of the revenue comes from selling this order flow to market makers. It's a pretty controversial way to make money. You've got people like Elizabeth Warren who are calling out the company by name, particularly in the wake of the GameStop trading fiasco. Um, we know the new head of the SEC, Gary Gensler, is not a particular fan of the practice. And Robinhood said in its S1, any major change to payment order flow due to regulation could have an outsized impact on its operations. They noted it as a key risk in the business. Um, there's other companies, Public, for example, have decided they're not going to do that anymore. So that's a competitor of theirs. And I just, you know, it just seems we, we know as people who are in this business that there was an awful lot of trading happening in the last year, three months, and that trading is not continuing on at the moment. So mm -hmm. that's um, 
that's my pitch for Robin Hood. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it sounds like Gwyneth Paltrow's cousin had another shot at writing an S1. Didn't she do? We, we ascertained this and you guys laughed me off the stage. That's true. A few we weeks did ago. Laugh you. <laughs> where I, th- I said, I think Gwyneth Paltrow's cousin wrote the S1 for WeWork and ah oh, ha ha, amateur fool. And I was right. But now I think she might have had a second gig uh, in writing that S1. But you hit on a very important point, Rory. Um, I was speaking to the CEO founder of a giant giant brokerage not robin hood privately owned so i will not disclose their name but i do know that trading volume has precipitously dropped over a cliff edge in the last few weeks um retail investors have just cooled off a bit and um i just think the timing of robin hood's ipo is just unbelievable because um we're gonna I'm, i say with a high level of certainty uh, we're going to see Robin Hood's Q1, our first quarter report after they floated, declaring a drop in retail activity. That would be just my prediction based on what I heard from another brokerage that's in uh, the same market, same space, kind of zero or near zero brokerage fees. Well, that's, I mean, that's assuming that uh, it's not Dogecoin related because that is such a <laughs> massive part of their business. And yeah. the six, big spike 6% in- of revenues is from Dogecoin. For Q1. Yeah, the, the big spike in Dogecoin was after the reporting period of this particular report. So um, mm. they may be, uh, may be a lot more bigger percentage mm. of revenue the next quarter yeah. that we hear from them. Um, another interesting true. note is that somewhere between, I think they said 15 and 25% of Robinhood shares would be reserved for Robinhood users, mm. um, which is going to be very interesting to see. What is the impact of that mm. going to have on the entire IPO? And what is going to happen when Robinhood users, or if, if it happens, if Robinhood have to cease trading their own stock on their own platform? Because we saw what happened with GameStop. <laughs> well, actually, I have to say I do admire that. I like the fact that they've kept some shares back for their loyal uh, products, their users. and that. The, so how does that work? What's the deal, Roy? Uh, like, how do you get allocated shares? I think I think it works very much like the way it would for institutional investors. You can apply for a certain number of shares at a stated price. And then oh. if you, you know, they'll be awarded based on, on, on how much demand there is. Mm-hmm. They'll be awarded based on how much Dogecoin you <laughs> So considering you've made your thoughts about the company pretty clear, what do you think about Robinhood's overall impact on the world of investing? where it was the first company to bring out commission-free trading in a big way, on a grand scale, and now it's almost ubiquitous. How do you feel Robinhood's impact on the wider market has been? That's a tough one. It's um, like, you know, zero commission trading is nothing special anymore. A lot of companies are doing it. I, th- I, I certainly am all for more people investing. But, cl- I mean, clearly, like, you know, as they say, Robinhood may say, that their most of their users are buy and hold, but that is absolutely not where they make their money. They they make their money in getting people to take options trades, uh, and to to have a company that is all about this idea of democratizing investing and, and and stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. If the vast majority of your revenue is coming from selling order flow to market makers to see what individual investors are doing with options, people who don't know much about options are doing, that is not good. <laughs> That's not a good thing. So I'll leave it at that. Not good. (laughs) Um, Speaking of IPOs, 
We can't go on without mentioning Diddy Zhong, which has been described as the Uber of China. Just days after its blockbuster US IPO, Chinese regulators pulled it from the app stores on national security grounds. Rory, can you please tell us what the hell is going on here? Uh, (laughs) What is going on is that sometimes when you invest in IPOs, things come out of the woodwork that weren't there beforehand and you get really smacked. Like uh, two days after listing on the US exchanges, the Chinese government decides to ban Diddy Chung from all app stores. That's that's tough. That's a tough one to take. And it's, I suppose it kind of backs up what I think we've been saying for a long time, which is like there, you, when you buy into IPOs, you're you're buying into a lot of risk. You know, there's just, there's just inherently more risk when a company is fresh on the market, when you've got things like lockup periods and you've got things that haven't been disclosed necessarily. Um, and, you know, similar to something like Lordstown Motors, for example, which, which is, um, it's yeah. Look, it's just one of those things. Wait a while. Just take a few days. Let, let it. Let, let let the company kind of get into the rhythm of being in the market before you decide to throw a lot of money into it. Mm. Do you get a kind of sickly pleasure from always stating that you wait six months when you see something like this? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I don't. I never get a, I never get any pleasure in seeing people lose money. But. <laughs> There is a little bit of I told you so running through me right now, I suppose. Okay, (laughs) moving on then to some unsurprising news. Uh, Facebook has announced that it's making changes to Instagram to make it look more like TikTok. Facebook's head of Instagram, Adam Masseri, announced the social network plans to start showing users full screen recommended videos in their feed. Amory, you've been looking into this. Do you think this is just a ploy to get more Zuckerberg related wakeboarding on our screens? Um, I definitely think it's uh, maybe a sign of panic, actually, yeah. um, within Instagram. Um, I think we've seen their user growth is is significantly dropped in 2020. It was only 6.2%. It's, uh, it's expected to drop to 1.8% by 2023. That is pretty poor, considering that um, TikTok's user growth is astronomical, particularly over the last year. It's also an issue of because TikTok is video-based, it can hold users' attention for a significantly longer period of time, which means they're on Instagram less and less. And it means that Instagram's ads are worth even less and it's much more difficult for them to monetize their users. And so I think adding this really is uh, yet another ploy of Facebook to copy features from other social media companies rather than investing in what they know works um, kind of within their own apps. And I really do fear actually for Instagram that this is just kind of an instance of which they're adding so many features into the app that they clutter it up and they really do risk, I guess, like watering down the kind of essence of the app when it was founded. I think something that was talked about when they made this pitch was, oh, we're moving into video. We want to more closely replicate TikTok. We want to more closely replicate YouTube. And it's because they feel that, oh, we're, we're losing people's attention. And I kind of disagree with them. I don't think there's any point in chasing these users who have already found other platforms to post their videos on. I think the strength of Instagram for so many years was photos. And now they're saying, oh, there's no money to be made in photos. We can't effectively advertise that medium. But Pinterest is effectively advertising that medium. So clearly, you know, that's not correct. I think if Instagram was really interested in kind of creating a community of investing in its creators, it would allow photography to be its central medium and it would find ways to create community based around that. I don't think this is going to be effective. I would argue that at least for people of my age group, um, we're leaving Instagram. We're not using it anymore because when they brought out Reels and they brought out the shopping feature – and they significantly increased the advertisement on the feed, it made the app almost unusable because it means that people that I actually follow, I don't really ever see their content anymore. And really people of my age are not posting on it anymore. And so 
I think by bringing out these features, you're push they're pushing people away from people that they follow, which is to kind of replicate what TikTok has done. Because when you go on TikTok, there are basically two central tabs for when you're consuming content. And that's the For You page, which is created by the algorithm and basically grabs content from all over the app, from all over the world, from all these different people. And it makes all these assumptions about you and tries to find content that you'll like and enjoy. And then there's a second tab, which is following, which is like, you know, any kind of users that you follow. And then it'll just be kind of all of their content lined up in a big list for you. And the vast majority of the time you spend it on the For You page because the algorithm on TikTok is so good. But in that way, it's not really a social media app. It's a media app. And I think Instagram is like trying to follow in this way. It's trying to become a media app. It's trying to kind of remove the personal relationships from the social media. And I think that that's not really going to work for a company that's kind of based in Facebook, which is around kind of making connections with people that you know in a digital way. I love how we talk about the algorithms, like there's another guy and there's a guy in another room with a gun, you know, it's the algorithm. Don't mess with it. Yeah, well, it wasn't too long ago we had a speaker in from TikTok and he said that the strength of the app was the sophistication of its recommendation engine. So I suppose that would kind of distinguish it from maybe Instagram copy and Snapchat stories. It's a much harder beast to recreate. This is something Mm. Scott Galloway calls um, signal liquidity, um, where he basically talks about TikTok and he says, if you think about Netflix, right, and what Netflix knows about you, if you watch an hour-long show on Netflix and you either you, you either stop watching it or you complete watching it, they've basically got one data point on you. With TikTok, they get a data point every 10 seconds. Um, so they know more about you than any other company could ever possibly know based on like how fast you react to each signal that comes to you. Um, and that is something that I think Facebook are going to have a very tough time replicating. Mm. So you're saying that Instagram shouldn't move from its core product of shilling cryptocurrencies and face masks? <laughs> no, I think that, that that clearly was working really well. Right. So Robinhood isn't the only big company to release an S1 this week. The language learning app Duolingo announces plans to go public. And as you'd expect, the numbers are pretty strong. With over 36 million monthly active users at the end of 2020, and revenue grown at 129%. The company had a huge year as people were stuck at home being demented by a digital owl. If you're a Duolingo user, this is a reminder to stop ignoring your Spanish lessons. Emmett, you and I had discussed previously the move away from formal education and the inevitable embrace of more casual and skill-based learnings. Do you think a company like Duolingo is the new wave of this type of educational disruptor? That's a tough one. Um, I suppose I knew I was going to speak about Duolingo and in keeping with the way it's gone for the last while, I have a very short prepared statement. It's only one sentence long and then I'm going to freestyle it for about five minutes about (laughs) Duolingo. So I'm going to just, (laughs) I'm just going to tell you the formal bit about Duolingo and then we're just going to go for it. Okay, so here we go. Quote, Pittsburgh-based language learning business Duolingo which was last year valued at $2.4 billion, has officially filed to go public, you said that bit, Mike, fair play, on the NASDAQ using the ticker symbol D-U-O-L, which is what we would have guessed. Okay, so that's that's a lovely intro. It's a great tee up to the question you asked me, Mike, and I'm going to take 10 minutes about to answer it. So let's get a few numbery things out of the way before we uncover what really matters. Okay, so 10 years ago, Duolingo is just a translation platform, basically, for news agencies. Um, And then over the next 10 years, they did a few things, and suddenly it's now used by 500 million people around the world. And I think they teach something like 38 different languages 
in the app. And I want to return to this point, the 38 languages, because there's a couple of surprise ones in there. And in fact, I'm going to have a little quiz with the three of you. Um, so get ready, get your quiz mind ready. So um, what's really interesting, it's become the top grossing education app in both Apple's App Store and Google Play. And that's really interesting to me because uh, my Wall Street has uh, had a lot of success in the unpaid category for learning with their Learn app. And we have very much considered and trialed and tested ways of you know, monetizing our learn product. So um, clearly Duolingo were faced with a similar challenge. And according to reports, I've read, quote, reports, I'm not going to cite anything. So Duolingo's route to monetization was really rocky. It was completely trial and error, which uh, I can assure our listeners is the way it goes. So the company eventually landed on subscriptions. This is despite an original aversion uh, as a result of its mission, which was to provide free education. So they've actually gone against their mission. Um, and it's probably just as well because the majority of their revenue now comes from subscriptions. So in, in 2020, it generated about three quarters of its total top line revenue from subscription. And then the other one quarter came from advertising and what they call the Duolingo English Test or DET. Anyway, it has a run rate of about $220 million today. And as you said, Mike, it's grown like mad, uh, growth well over 100%. Um, so I, I pretty much expect it will exceed the, the privately set valuation tag um, when it IPOs, that private tag on its last round, as I said, it was $2.4 billion. But okay, let me get on to the interesting stuff, right? The company is founded by a guy called Louis Von Ahn, A-H-N. I hope I'm pronouncing that. Louis, if you're listening, send me a note. Um, anyway, it was founded by Louis Van Aan, who was the inventor of CAPTCHA, which stands for Completely Automated Public Test Turing Test. So CAPTCHA, as you will all know, is that wee thing on websites which tells computers and humans apart, where it shows you a string of really badly drawn letters and numbers for what you know is known as a challenge response test to determine whether or not you're a human. Um, now... Personally, my hit rate with CAPTCHA is not good, not good at all. Um, and it makes me wonder if Duolingo would be a fit for me because I can't, I can't get through his starter pack multimillionaire making startup. You know, like honestly, how are you, hit rate for CAPTCHA for you guys where you've shown this badly drawn mess and you've, to, I, what's it like? Mike, what's your hit rate on CAPTCHA? Are you a hundred percenter? Emmett, this explains so much, this tirade. I'm like, okay, Emmett, we can do this. And like, hey, look, I'm all over the alphabet. <laughs> I had that down age three. But yeah. like when I no, see Capsha, I'm, I'm like... I'm on the Capsha side here. I'm not sure if you're a human either, to be honest. <laughs> I don't know about the cat, the letter one, but the one where they show you yeah. like a photo and they're like identify all the boats. Um, the boats in this picture, yeah. and you're like, and there's one yes. that's right on the edge, yes. and you're like sweating profusely. Yes, I know. Like, is that in the photo <laughs> or not? This is it exactly. So Captcha Two, I think, or Captcha Pro or Captcha Unleashed. That's it. And you're like, is that a bit of a boat? Is that the nose of a boat? I don't even know if the nose of a boat is. <laughs> but anyway, look, you're right. So um, anyway, the plot thickens. The co-founder of Duolingo is a guy called Severin Hacker. Okay, Hacker, his name is Hacker. Now imagine, my co-founder was born a hacker, 
they'll die a hacker. So are you in? You want to buy our software? <laughs> I don't know. I think you need a pseudonym like Kaiser Sose or something. Like you, you can't just you, you just can't have a co-founder whose second name is Hacker. So you know the capture thing, the hacker thing. So far, I'm like, mm. anyway. On the subject of languages available, obviously enough, all the big ones are there: English, Spanish, French, Chinese. They're all top of the list. Um, there's a few odd ones in there though. So I'm going to run a quiz and I'm going to start with an easy one, okay? And I'm going to give you some guide points. So currently, Duolingo has about a half a million learners of Indonesian, Danish, and Romanian. So those three languages pretty much have 500,000 learners each. How many are learning Irish, the Gaelic, the, the language of Ireland for American listeners? I think I, I might know this because it comes up. I use Duolingo. Oh. Ah. And it, they, it, the little things come up. I'm, I might be misremembering this, but something along the lines of there was more Gaelga, which is the Irish yeah. language speakers, than yeah. there are people in Ireland. So five million. Anne Marie, what do you reckon? I think it. I think it's it's over a million because you know you have all those Irish Americans in America, and they're mm. they just want to be Irish so so badly mm. that they'll they'll bo- they'll bother with the Duolingo owl. But only one came over to us, you, Anne-Marie. So thank you for that true commitment. (laughs) Um, And Mike? Yeah, I'll go over 5 million as well. Why not? Winner, 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 Anne-Marie. The number is 1.1 million, according to their site, Rory. Now you might be right, but uh, it is. No, no, that was a guess. That was a guess. So actually, so I was surprised to see there were double the number of Irish learners than compared to Indonesian, Danish, Romanian. Okay, I have another one. They have a beta version of a language called Klingon, which is the language of the recurring antagonists in the 1960s television show Star Trek. So how many learners do they have for Klingon? This is the best segment we've ever I done. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't invent the app. Somebody sat down and just actually duolingoed the entire Klingon language okay so how many learners do they have two million um two two hundred yeah i'd say it's, le- it's less than a million it's probably like two hundred thousand. okay gold star to Anne marie again it's three hundred thousand. imagine three hundred thousand people want to learn that okay last one last one are there more or less students of high valkyrian or valkyrian is it than Norwegian. I can't even pronounce it. Hi, Valerian. Oh, Valerian. Way, is the... Valerian. Thank you. Sorry, my, my handwriting here needs a bit of work. <laughs> Back to the capture point. So ha, there are more or less students of High Valerian than Norwegian. Okay, so High Valerian, by the way, is, the de- is I, again, I'm going for a quote here, is a dead language of a fallen empire used by <laughs> scholars and educated noblemen throughout a medieval world inside the TV show Game of Thrones, <laughs> right? How many people want to learn High Valerian more or less than Norwegian? Less than Norwegian. Less. Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones kind of died a slow death there. More, because people are weird. Oh, <laughs> uh, Anne-Marie, I really wanted you to get that one right. So you had um, Sorry. the hat trick. No, it's less. The High Valerian has 450,000 students, while Norwegian has about a half million more than that. Norwegian is nearly a million students. So that that's Duolingo. I mean, what can we infer about its IPO? Its founder gave us CAPTCHA. Its co-founder's name is Hacker. It teaches people <laughs> High Valerian. <laughs> but in fairness, it has it, it is it is the most uh, profitable 
learning app in the world and i actually quite like it from digging into it i thought it, it looks like it's one i'll be watching it has amazing retention qualities i have to say mm. you get this the, the the owl duo is like the most threatening mascot i've ever seen in my life he like sends you a little message being like hey rory have you practiced your portuguese yet today and you're like no, sorry, Duo, not just yet. I'll do it later. And he's like, pulls out a knife. Why don't you do it now? You're like, disculpa, Duo, disculpa. I'm learning to do it now, yes. Right, I'm going to move on before Emma gets a job for Duolingo's press team here. Um, so we have a few very exciting things going on around my Wall Street at the minute, with July's stock of the month having just been published. One of the best performing businesses of 2020 on the public markets. 2021 hasn't been as kind to this stock. Uh, Rory, would you like to tell us any more about July's stock of the month? It's one of those ones where, you know, like at the moment, there's, it's hard to find value. And it, this isn't the first time it's been hard to find value in the lifetime of stock of the month. And when, when, this, when this happens, what's worked in the past is just to look at really good business that is firing on all cylinders and understand that it's probably never going to look cheap. Um, so you just have to keep buying it on the way up. Very good. I like that. All right. Uh, as always, you can follow the link to the notes for this podcast to start your free trial with My Wall Street. Uh, moving on then to jargon busters. One of the common concerns we get from our members is that they feel their portfolios have become overly concentrated in tech stocks. Rory, do you think the term tech stocks has become obsolete and perhaps an overgeneralization considering how important technology has become to pretty much every business nowadays? Yeah, I mean, this reminds me of a couple of years ago, someone tried to start a cloud computing ETF. And, you know, you looked at it and were like, is any business not going to be in a cloud computing ETF in a few years? It was just like <laughs> it tech, tech, the cloud is, is everything now. Like there's no, how can you be a non-tech company? Like is Amazon a tech company? You know, th- people could think of Amazon as like, well, it's a consumer retailer, but AWS is such a huge part of that business. They sell tech hardware, you know, they run a massive logistics network all through technology. So... A friend of mine asked me to have a like do a breakdown of their portfolio recently, and I was kind of trying to do the whole sector thing. You know what sector are they in? Make sure you're not too heavy in in a particular sector. And I just had to. I was like classifying everything as tech because there's just I I couldn't think of another way to think of them. Yet all the businesses did like very different things. They all operated in different markets, and so I do think yeah. I mean this idea of being over heavy in tech is probably something you shouldn't need to worry about too much. If you're in very heavy in one particular type of tech, um, let's say every single company you own is a high growth SaaS company, then you should be diversifying out of that. Because as we have seen in the last couple of months, certainly you do see sector rotations where, where sectors just completely fall out of favor with the street. And you will then have days where every single stock you own is down 10%. And that's no one wants to see that. Um, so yeah, you know, I think it's probably more than looking at it as like sectors. You could probably use the Peter Lynch uh, six different type of companies model, um, and then just make sure that yeah, you're not in one one very specific type of sector. Cool. Okay. Uh, the next dragon buster we have revolves around pre-revenue companies. Emmett, do you think companies who've yet to earn any money should be on the public markets? Mm. Well, the IPO and listing process is at its most fundamental level a capitalization option for a business. So as a result, it attracts the attention of every matter of 
business at some stage and whether it's a fleeting consideration by a founder who in 10 seconds flat decided that they are uninterested and ever floating through to massively funded giant private companies like Stripe, New World mega brands like Airbnb, old American icons like Coke and Ford, restaurant chains, cleaning companies, software businesses, department stores, pharmaceuticals, banks, debt collection agencies, space exploration, whatever. But from what a company does perspective, the stock market judges no business once it's operating within the parameters of the law. So the first part of the answer is that the system is fair game for all, pre-revenue or massively profitable. So when you think about what type of enterprise it should attract, you would think that businesses that need to fuel operations with a giant check need to float far more than one that's landing billions of dollars on the bottom line every year, like um, like Lego, which is the world's largest toy company by revenue. And sure enough, Lego is private. It never floated. It doesn't need the check that an IPO will deliver. So if we look at out at the extreme ends of the turnover spectrum, pre-revenue right through to massively profitable, it stands to reason that listing is far more attractive to the former than the latter. So companies that can grow with a check that they needed. So when we look at pre-revenue companies, the only ones that would be tolerated as an investment are those with the potential to ultimately become profitable. And a great example of that is pharmaceutical companies working on orphan drugs, which is a, a status in America that gives companies exclusive right and tax breaks for seven years on a drug to cure a specific condition that affects too few patients to be big and commercially viable for a big company. Um, so generally you see a whole pile of pharma companies that are pre-revenue, they have floated because they needed the check. These companies need runway, they need cash. And if they happen upon, happen upon, if they develop through a very rigorous process, a cure for an illness, uh, everyone wins. Everyone wins. The patients win and the, treat, the, the, the investors win and it's party time for all concerned. So ultimately, these investments fall into a high risk reward category. And yes, absolutely, they should be on the public markets. Very good. I love your point about the pre-revenue companies are the ones that need to IPO the most almost. What's great about pre-revenue companies is they mm. can never mm. miss their revenue targets. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for that little dig. <laughs> All right, now for this week's... <laughs> we still made nothing. Wow, uh, they smashed the ball out of the park. Well, actually, this was their nail in it, revenue targets then. <laughs> okay, for this week's elevator pitch, uh, I'm going to come to Rory and Anne-Marie. These past few months, you've been working on a great new piece of content in the My Wall Street app called A First Look, in which you share your initial thoughts on a company you've been watching, which you're considering adding to My Wall Street's shortlist. For today's pitch, I want you to share with me your favorite. Uh, let's start with you, Emery. Well... I mean, the first thing I felt when I saw Instagram's um, new moves before being annoyed um, was actually vindicated because I think two weeks ago when I pitched Vimeo, which was also featured in a first look, I said the future of the internet is video. So that was nice. So my um, kind of elevator pitch is going to be Vimeo. I really like the company. I really like where it's headed. Its growth in the last year has been astronomical. Um, I pitched it like two weeks ago, so there's not that much to say on it. They did just release... 
Um, their monthly growth rate, which is actually really nice. Uh, Vimeo, if you go on their investor relations page, they'll give you a month-to-month breakdown of kind of their main growth figures, including total revenue subscribers and average revenue per user. Um, as expected, in the month of May, these have their growth rate has slowed, but it is still there. And so they can their total revenue continues to climb by 42%. Their subscribers are up 18%, and their average revenue per user is up 18%. I would expect this growth rate to kind of level off as we continue into the um, first few months of their IPO. Um, it'll be interesting to see how low this rate goes, but um, I'm still very excited about it. Good stuff. Now, Rory, follow that. <laughs> well, after after that dig, I am going to pitch a company that is, well, was when I made the first look anyway, pre-revenue. <laughs> and <laughs> I love it. Uh, actually, look, there's so many good ones we've looked at recently. Airbnb, obviously, was one. And, but don't give too much away now. There might be subscribers oh, listening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sign into the app in the show notes. Uh, now this this is a really kind of out there business. Um, and like I said, it was pre-revenue when I first looked at it, which usually would mean I wouldn't even bother looking at it. But it was um, pitched to me first by uh, the very good Jason Moser, who has turned us on to some great businesses in the past. So I did take a look at it. It's a company called App Harvest. Um, and what App Harvest do is they're in the ag tech business. They... Um, they build and run what's called controlled environmental environment agriculture facilities, um, and basically what they do is they, they it's essentially like indoor farming, um, very kind of Blade Runner twenty forty nine or whatever year that the the sequel was in, um, but they can essentially make far more food using far less water. Uh, they can produce thirty times as much produce on the same acreage as an open farm field using ninety percent less water with no agricultural runoff, no soil erosion. Um, they're at the very, very early stages of this. I think they have one of these CEAs up and running at the moment. Uh, they plan to have 12 open by 2025. They can deliver food to 70% of the US within 24 hours. Um, and it's uh, it's run by kind of two guys. There was one guy, the, the CEO is a guy called um, Jonathan Webb. Um, but the other founder is a guy called Jeff Ubin. And though I'd say most people have never heard of Webb, Anyone who's kind of been working in the finance world for the last 20 years definitely knows about Jeff Ubin. He was a very prolific hedge fund manager who kind of had a kind of awakening in the last year when he decided that all he's been doing his life has been very destructive and now he wants to invest in like, you know, social good. Um, Martha Stewart is on the board of directors. Um, so yeah, it's just one of those kind of odd companies that uh, I'm quite interested in. Very good. The pre-revenue-er has become the pre-revenue-e. Um <laughs> that's it from this week's stock club if there's anything you want to discuss or explain on the next episode make sure to get in touch on twitter at my wall street hq or email us at pod at my that's pod at my please don't forget to subscribe to stock club too and if you're enjoying it please leave a review for us on whatever podcasting platform you listen to us on we'll talk to you in two weeks happy investing <laughs>
Tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.